0: I just thank You, Lord, just for the extra blessing it was uh, to get to sing those this morning, Father, and to take the Lord's Supper together with these brothers and sisters. And Lord, I pray now that You would guide me as I preach Your Word. I pray You'd take the uh, the, the thoughts that I've prepared as I've studied Your Word and make them uh, useful and applicable uh, and and. And very meaningful in the lives of these folks who hear it. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Um, you guys ready for this one? This one's going to be a fun one, for me at least. I'm, I, I anticipate I'm going to have a lot of fun with this sermon. And you're looking at the verses like, what does he mean by that? Well, you never know. You never know what I mean. But um, we're uh, getting closer to wrapping up our time in Colossians chapter 3. And today we're going to make it through verses eighteen to twenty-one, and the next sermon will tackle the remainder of the chapter um, and into the remainder of this chapter and into the verse one of chapter four. But that's a kind of a bigger subject. I think it needs its own sermon, possibly two. I'm not sure about that, but it's dealing with the issue of of slavery, slavery in the ancient world, slavery in uh, more modern times, slavery even in the present day. How Does what God's Word says about that subject affect us today? I think that's worth really taking some time to ponder that one. So today we're just going to talk about the family unit. Here in chapter 3 though, as I've said on other occasions, it's a chapter about overcoming and killing sin in the new life uh, that believers experience in Christ. Jesus expects us to have victory over sin in this new life that we have. And I've tried my best to present this promise and expectation to you in as hopeful um, and encouraging and honest a way as I possibly could. Because I sincerely um, want you to trust this promise. This promise and, and to really have progress in your life's struggle to overcome sin and strongholds. Sanctification, which is growing in holiness and purity, is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. It is His will for your life. And we've talked about the language analogy that, that Paul uses in this chapter. The, the, he employs this, this imagery of using garments or clothing. Um, and we've talked about Uh, In verses 5 to 9, Paul gave us a list of old spiritual clothes that need to be taken off and laid aside. They they don't fit us anymore, but they were fitting for our old identity before we knew Christ. In verses 12 to 14, Paul gave us another list of new spiritual clothes that need to be put on because they now match or fit our new identity in Jesus. So, the analogy was to communicate that the interchange that Christ brought about when the Colossians were first saved was to exhibit itself in attitudinal and behavioral changes that others around them could see. Because this transformed, visible life would give testimony to the reality of the inner, invisible change that Jesus had brought about in them. The way Christians speak should be different. The way they act should be different. They should no longer be self-serving and cruel, but they should live with compassion, with kindness, with gentleness, patience, and with a loving willingness to forgive those who sin against them. But prominently in Paul's encouragement to the Colossians was the transformed way in which those in Christ ought to think. I've said this over and over again throughout this entire series in chapter 3. The front line of the battle against sin is the mind. The Christian is supposed to think differently To have a different and transformed mind, one one that is set on the things above, where Christ is, our loving Savior and Lord. Last time we were together, we discussed how that transformed mind is most impacted and fed. The transformed mind of the Christian lets the word of Christ richly dwell within it. Verse 16, heavenly values dominating the mind produce godliness. Godliness. Sin will be conquered, and humility, a sacrificial spirit, and assurance will be the result, so says John MacArthur, which I think is very well said. But today, we're going to talk about the great proving ground for whether or not this transformation is sincere, and that's the home. You see, just like us, it was likely a temptation for the Colossian Christians to play church, to play church well when they were together in fellowship. And I imagine it's probably been human nature and the, the human tendency for time immemorial to, uh, to put your best foot forward when you're out in a more public setting and just let it all hang out when you're in the privacy of your own home. Um, to speak in a manner that we're used to today in our culture, none of us want to look like a hot mess when we're out in public, do we? I don't. Um, but at home, sometimes we can really look like a hot mess and we're glad, oh, i I'm glad my friends didn't see me do what I just did or say what I just said. Paul knew this tendency in people to be pretenders and to desire to look well put together to those that they encounter outside the home. This could be one of the reasons why Paul in so many of his letters addresses the proper way to live inside of your home. The new identity that Christ brings transforms all of life. The home should be transformed as well. There are lists that are similar to this in the New Testament uh, that we find here in Colossians. You can also find one in Ephesians 5, in 1 Timothy 2 and 6, Titus chapter 2, and in 1 Peter chapter 2. And in addition to the New Testament, there are other Greco Roman moralists and philosophers who compiled similar lists to the ones we find in our New Testament that gave this appropriate ordering of the home. And in that culture, it was understood that the home was, and the family were were the underpinning institutions that created a foundation for a stable and well-ordered society. So the motive for most of those other lists, those secular ones, was the preservation of a manner of life, or a culture, or law and order. Not bad motives, necessarily, But this is where the New Testament lists are different from the other secular lists that were written around those same times. Because in the New Testament, the motive for the proper ordering of the household was the glory of the Lord Jesus. What secular moralists and and, and philosophers recognized as the ideal ordering of the home that society rested upon would be actually realized to a much greater degree in the homes of those who've been transformed by Jesus. But the benefit of this realized ideal would be so much greater than just a well-ordered and a stable society, which are great things. It would also be evidence of a, of a reality, the reality of a much greater kingdom that was emerging, and that would eventually dominate the whole world, the reign of King Jesus, and we look forward to that still. So for us today who profess the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, the condition of our homes matters. They still have a stabilizing and blessing effect on our earthly society, right? We love it when in our neighborhoods, families, happy families with well-behaved kids move into those neighborhoods, right? We like that. It perpetuates the well-being of that neighborhood. But more importantly than that, the testimony of a Christian home is of a greater kingdom that's coming. Thus, it should be the prayer and the desire of every one of us that that King Jesus would reign in our homes in the here and now. And that our homes would be bright lights to the world around us, displaying that greater glory of that greater kingdom that's to come. So today, our path forward is simply to discuss these four relational dynamics that are before us in the text. um, In these four verses. Um, And these four comprise the basic family unit as designed by God. And there's a timeless and a universal order that ought to exist in these relationships. And these four relationships are just these. The wife to the husband, the husband to the wife, the children to the parents, and the parents to the children. Very simple. So let me read the text for us. Verses 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands. As is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. I better pray again before I continue. <laughs> Lord Jesus, um, I do need your help today, God. Your truth um, is often hard for us to hear in our modern day because it is so counter our culture. Please bless uh, this sermon. Bless those who hear it. Open our hearts to receive your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, many in our world today, America included, hate this simple and good design for the home. They mock it. They call it patriarchal and oppressive, They label it hateful, misogynistic, homophobic. They belittle it as simplistic, antiquated, a relic of an uninformed and uneducated past. Many in our society literally rage against this simple and ancient structure for the family. They seek to dismantle it, to deconstruct it, and to destroy this ideal. And they seek this destruction with the deceived and deceptive motive of liberating people from the enslaving and burdensome authoritarian structure and freeing people from the wrong-headed notion of a God who sees and judges and limits your creativity. And I, I just pray that these voices do not prevail in our country. It feels like they are. But in the pulpits today, it's those who preach a gospel deceptively called progressive Christianity and liberation theology that perpetuate this sort of disdain for the order that God created. In politics, it's those who preach leftist utopian ideals of communal globalist, in other words, state ownership of property and collectivist distributionist economic policy. That's a lot of big words in that sentence. So... In a word, it's socialism. In places where socialism has taken root and prevailed, the liberation that citizens of those lands experienced was akin to the liberation that one feels when they are liberated from their mansion and given a one-bedroom trailer to live in. They're liberated from a buffet of delicacies and delicious food to choose from, and they're given a meager bowl of rice and a long line to wait in to grab a loaf of bread. Liberated from a closet full of fine clothes and replaced with a single raggedy garment. Liberated from a good job with dignity for the depressing state of unemployment and subsidized sustenance. This is what socialism brings freedom and liberty they proclaim all along, but it's no liberation at all that they deliver. It's poverty, it's despair, it's death. And I pray that God would deliver us from this in our country. Those who have designs like this for our country. Lord, let them not prevail. But let's talk about this first relational dynamic that Paul presents in the text. Wives, be subject to your husbands, okay? How does this have to do anything with socialism? Verse 18. We'll get there, don't worry about it. Um, But I'm about to address a very potentially touchy subject. So I need to move forward with great wisdom and care and all seriousness. So I think the best way to proceed is with some good old Red skeleton recipe for a perfect marriage jokes. Are you ready? All right, here we go. These are all husband and wife jokes, mostly wife jokes. And I find them very funny. My mother-in-law shared them with me, so they're PG. Anyway, here we go. Here's this one. The last fight was my fault, I confess. My wife asked, what's on the TV? I said, dust. (laughs) Two two times a week, my wife and I go to a nice restaurant, have a little beverage, good food and companionship. She goes on Tuesdays and I go on Fridays. (laughs) I take my wife everywhere but she keeps finding her way back. I uh, I was just dying laughing when I was reading these the other day. Manny didn't find them as funny as me for some reason. Um, I asked my wife where she wanted to go for her anniversary. Somewhere I haven't been in a long time, she said, so I suggested the kitchen. I I love that one. Uh, To be fair, that's not at all true of my wife. She's in the kitchen probably way more than she should be. Anyway, so here's another one. My wife and I always hold hands because if I let go, she shops. (laughs) My wife has an electric blender, an electric toaster, an electric bread maker. She said the other day, there are too many gadgets and there's no place to sit down. So I bought her an electric chair. Oh, that's so funny. Anyway, um, <laughs> my wife got a mud pack at the salon the other day, and she looked great for two days. Then the mud fell off. <laughs> uh, this one might be my favorite, just heads up. The other day, my wife ran after the garbage truck yelling, Am I too late for the garbage? The driver said, No, jump in. <laughs> uh, okay. I married Mrs. Wright. I just didn't know her first name it was Always. So, I haven't spoken to my wife in 18 months. I don't like to interrupt her. Anyway, all right. Yeah. yeah. So, where was I? Back to my notes. Here we go. All right. So, now that I've disarmed you ladies with humor, uh, I'm going to go now attack feminism. Okay? How's that? You see what I did there? So, one of the earliest forms of this liberationist or socialist philosophies that emerged in our society's history was feminism. Feminism um, it was literally called the women's liberation movement. And some of its early leaders had a bent towards socialist politics and very liberal versions of Christianity. Christianity like the Unitarian Universalists. A couple ladies' names, if you wanted to do some research on your own, Judith Sargent Murray, or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. You can check them out. They're examples of these socialist, very liberal bents. Feminism held that societies of Western democracies were structured in such a way that was inherently oppressive to women. And they favored and they prioritized the needs and the desires of men. And so, without getting too deeply into the feminist philosophy, Um, In history, I, I want to just say that the trajectory of the feminist movement has contributed to the present day attitude of revulsion and recoil at the words of the Apostle Paul that we just read today in our New Testaments. What do you mean, wives, be subject to your husbands? How dare you align with such a misogynistic monster like the Apostle Paul? There may be some of you ladies hearing this today that have a a visceral recoil at the words on the page before you. Before I ever said a word or told a joke, you you didn't like this. You didn't like this. Some say that that Paul actually did liberate women and and gave them equal standing. Because in Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There's no male and no female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Thus, they say, this letter to the Colossians and other letters that he wrote that are like it, um, that that are ascribed to Paul, that say similar things, were not really written by Paul, but by someone else who pretended to be him. And thus, they shouldn't be in our Bibles. People actually say that. These are real arguments that people have made, and they still make. Others will go so far as to say, "Well, Paul did write these things, so Paul was wrong. Jesus was right." Right? And so they, put the, they, they pit Jesus and Paul against one another and claim that there's a contradiction between what Paul taught and what Jesus taught, when really, there's not at all. So, um, still others, though, they, they dismiss Paul's words here as only applying in the past. Because he was writing in a culture which was very different and less enlightened than our own. He had to write like this, you see, because, because he was... Um, it would have been too disruptive to the society that he ministered in and that he lived in if he espoused what the truly Christian principles would be. Now, in our present day culture, we don't need to interpret Paul's instruction here as a universal and timeless order. We don't have to do that, right? And I guess I want to tell you guys something just full disclosure. I agree with them, it's cultural. We don't have to interpret these as universal and timeless. And and to be consistent, the rest of these verses are also not universal and timeless. So, husbands, you no longer have to love your wives. It's a joke, right? Kids, you no longer have to obey your parents. You're liberated, guys. You're liberated, right? Dads, pick on your kids and aggravate them to your heart's content. You're free now, right? Of course, I'm kidding, but I, I did that to make the point that it's inconsistent to desire to throw out the instruction to the women and leave the ones to the men and the children intact. Do you understand that? Well, let's get back to the text and the context. Paul is writing about putting off the old, sinful clothes and putting on the new garments of righteousness. Consider these instructions to family members in this light. The sinful tendency of the old selves that wives will war against is the tendency to usurp the headship of their husbands and to resist the good order that God created. According to a commentator, Richard Mellick, in the New American Commentary series, he said this, Paul explained that the order for the husband and the wife was distinctly beyond cultural aspects like this when he argued similarly in 1 Corinthians eleven two 2-16, because there in that passage... He accepted the order of creation as one evidence of the timelessness of the pattern. Further, in that passage, Paul explained that the pattern for the home is the Trinity itself, which we just sang about today. There is a functional subordination within the Godhead. And you know what? Melech is right here. And the fall brought about a human condition that seeks to pervert and upend that divine order that God made. In Genesis 3.16, after the fall of Adam and Eve, God said to Eve, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And he goes on to say, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. It can rightly be understood that what is being conveyed there in Genesis is that Eve's desire would be for her husband's position as head. In other words, she would experience dissatisfaction with her husband's role as ruler. This is why Paul, in the next phrase here in Colossians 3.18, reminds wives that the motive for their willingly submitting to their husbands is because, in doing so, it is fitting in the Lord. It's not just fitting culturally in the Greco-Roman world. It's fitting in the Lord. This is God's timeless and universal design for the home. But because we know Christ, ladies, because you know Christ, the aspiration of your new selves in him should be to assume the role in life that fits your new identities. For wives to be subjects subject to their husbands is fitting and proper in Jesus. Now, what Paul communicates with this by using this instruction in the Greek is a little bit clearer than it is in the English regarding a very important point. What Paul is communicating here is not that the wife's submission to her husband should be a forced one, but rather a willing one done out of obedience to and for the glory of Jesus. Hence, the degree to which the wife ought to be submissive to her husband does not extend to the point of submitting to the husband if doing so would be violating the word of God. Her higher allegiance is to Jesus and his command. And if the command of Jesus and her husband's command is in conflict, then she must choose Christ. Another important point here is that Paul's intended audience in this epistle is the Christian family. Hence, another assumption of Paul in giving this instruction, directing wives to be submissive, is that they would most likely be married to husbands who took their instruction from Paul seriously too to love their wives just as seriously as the wife should take their instruction to be subject which brings us to our next relationship dynamic here Paul moves on in verse 19 and the next party in the marital relationship the husbands to the wife husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them now In the case of the rise of feminism, which sought to, eventually sought to upend the created order for the household, it's true that the reason that the ideology caught on so well and resonated so widely is because, in many cases, women were treated poorly by men. We have to acknowledge that. It's not that feminism didn't identify a real problem. It was a real problem. It didn't just create the problem, whole cloth out of nothing, It wasn't just a bunch of unruly, insubordinate women out to ruin everything. There was real abuse and real oppression of women that took place in many places and homes. The problem with feminism, though, was that it ended up attacking the structure of the family, which is the optimal environment for women to be safe and secure and to have well-being. The target of their ire was misplaced. The structure of the family wasn't the problem. The sin of the heart within their husbands was the root of the oppression and the mistreatment. And the sin in in their own hearts that sought to usurp the husband's authority in many ways exacerbated the dilemma. Another of the problems with feminism... With with feminism, especially in the activist corridors of the movement, was the assumption that the experience of those who were oppressed was the shared experience of all or, or or most other women, and that simply was not the case at all. There were many many women who totally rejected the aims of the feminist movement because their experience in their homes was actually one of blessing and contentment. I think of my own grandmother. She was born in the early 1920s. And so she lived right in the midst of the emergence of the first wave of feminism. Well, the tail end of the first wave of feminism. She lived a very happy life with her husband. They were Christians. He loved her dearly. She was as anti-feminist as you could possibly be, though she probably never even said the word feminist. The way she lived, though, showed that she enjoyed and was blessed by God's created order. That said... Much of the fault often does lie with men in the failings of the marital relationship. Again, Paul addresses the tendency of our old selves before Christ, which was alluded to back in Genesis 6. When God punished Eve, your husband will rule over you, God said. Men in their natural state can easily become tyrannical. They can exert their rightful role of of head of the family in cruel and unloving treatment of their wives. Sadly, It happens all too often. Sadly, most sadly, and most tragically, it happens in the homes of Christians as well. Men can be overbearing. Men can be unreasonable. They can be childish. They can be temperamental, given to outbursts of anger, abusive in the most extreme situations. I had a friend of mine in college who was an accountability partner to me. When he was newly married, he and his wife didn't get along very well, but he and I met weekly, and he recounted a story of an argument that he and his wife had so that I could pray for him. Either that or he was just venting. But uh, he was telling me about this argument that he and his wife had, and it was, he was just upset with the way she was behaving. And it finally got to the point where he just said, Woman, submit! And guess what? It worked. No, it didn't. I'm kidding. It, it didn't work. No. No. Those are extreme circumstances. I'll come back to that in a moment, okay? I'm just going to leave that hanging there so you'll pay attention to the rest of what I'm saying here. Most of the time, men don't act this way, right? Most of the time, they're not overbearing necessarily or abusive. More often than not, they can be just as sinfully passive or lazily obtuse. Kids, if you don't know what obtuse means... It means being slow of perception with a small intellect, okay? Men can be willfully that way at times. Like, oh, I didn't know what you meant. Uh, anyway, you know, a number of years ago, there was a, a popular Canadian TV show for men on PBS called The Red Green Show. You guys ever watch this? Yeah. Yeah, In the, this, this, portray, this portrays lazy obtuseness, like, just perfectly. So, um in the show, the men would meet in their exclusive men-only lodge, and they would bow their heads and they would recite the man's prayer, which was this, I'm a man, but I can change, if I have to, I guess. <laughs> this, is, this is obviously not what Paul had in mind, not how we should live our new life in Christ, right? When I was a kid, I used to like watching um, another popular old comedy show from the 50s and 60s. It was called The Little Rascals. You guys probably watched that also. Um... Do you recall, guys, the name of the club that Spanky, Buckwheat, Froggy, and Alfalfa created? You guys remember? He-Man Woman Haters Club, right? (laughs) The He-Man Woman Haters Club. And it was so funny. They would meet and they would make all of these vows to avoid and ignore girls and to never fall in love with them, right? And Alfalfa was always the softy. He was always the one who would break the oath with his secret love interest in Darla. And it was hilarious as a kid. The He-Man Woman Haters Club this whole tendency of men is alive and well still today, right? We hear talk all the time of men building and furnishing their man caves, don't we? Right? Guys, they still want a place where they can passively avoid relational problems and fill their time and attention with ultimately unimportant diversions. They still do this. They still do this. A couple years ago when Me and uh, the boys were delivering mulch for trail life. We delivered a bunch of bags to this really nice house on some acreage over in Colerain Township. It was a retired couple living there in their mid-60s. And the husband had the coolest garage that you ever saw. I mean, it was neat as a pin. The concrete floor was sealed with that glossy, waterproof, paint-flecked finish. You guys know what I'm talking about. It was decorated with all kind of retro 1950s and 60s tin and and aluminum advertisement posters. It was very cool. It looked like a diner. And he had two really, really really cool classic antique sports cars that were as clean and polished to perfection as anything you had ever seen. And me and the boys couldn't help but be envious. We we just couldn't. But it was obvious that this guy spent a lot of time in that garage. I mean, it was pristine. And guys, listen, I'm not condemning hobbies, and I'm not not even condemning man caves necessarily. I'm not saying that this guy shouldn't have had those nice things or that nice space. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that if we're not careful, too much of these types of things can become an excuse for us to passively ignore important relational responsibilities that we have. Do you hear me? Our families need us relationally. And our careers can do the same thing. In fact, we may justify it a lot more because of our career, the time away from our family, because we feel like we have to for the sake of pleasing our employer or providing for the family. And then if you do that, though, your wives turn into feminists. I'm kidding. I'm just joking, right? They're not going to turn (laughs) into... You're too obtuse to notice it, though, but your wife has just turned into a feminist. Anyway, Paul points out another tendency in uh, the old sinful self that men struggle with, and it's this. They become embittered toward their wives. This tendency seems to be why men digress into unloving and passive postures. Actually, the jokes that I told from Red Skelton, they actually illustrate this tendency in men that I just told you about. I mean, funny as they were, they reflect the heart of a husband that has grown embittered toward his wife, don't they? And I'm not suggesting that Red Skelton actually felt this way about his wife, but they were so funny because they ring true about men in general oftentimes. This past week, I told Manny I was gonna do this. Generally, I wake up in the morning and I make myself some getta and some eggs. And while I'm making the eggs, I make Mandy some eggs because she's asked me to make eggs for her. And um, this morning in particular, not today, but earlier this week, I made some eggs. That Mandy didn't like them. She didn't like them at all. And I could tell by her face because she kept making this face like... <laughs> she ate numerous bites. And I am not exaggerating her facial expression. It was literally, it, probably more animated than I just was. And so... When I saw her making that face, I sensed bitterness rising up in my heart. <laughs> Guys, you would have thought that I had not just made the eggs for her, but I had laid the eggs for her. <laughs> um, in my head, I'm thinking, why are you making that bitter face? How ungrateful, how, how rude. <laughs> Sorry. Paul points us away from these tendencies to be unloving and embittered to our new, uh, in our, to our new selves in Christ, right? we got to resist these tendencies. Mandy was really late in apologizing to me, so I, that's why I told her her punishment is I'm going to use that as a sermon illustration. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not punishing her. Anyway, um, the aspiration for our new selves in Christ In light of verse 17, which we covered last time, is this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You men who are in Christ, love your wives and thank God for them. This part of Paul's list for household duties in the ancient world was the part that was truly revolutionary. Richard Mellick notes this, that the simple positive command is to love, and the term agape is used here. It never occurred in secular household tables that other secular moralists created. Never. The command, therefore, appears to be a distinctively, distinctively Christian element of the marriage relationship. Love. The concern here is not a matter of affection or sexual attraction. It involves active and self-sacrificial care for the well-being of your wife. This is agape. This is the difference Christ makes in our home. We love as Christ loves the church, as it says in a parallel passage in Ephesians 5.25. Men, when we love our wives this way, we make their corollary responsibility to be subject to our headship cease to be a burden. It becomes a delight to them. Ephesians 5.28 says, So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. It's like that phrase, happy wife, happy life. It's true. Paul doesn't mention this, though. He doesn't mention this, a man who loves his own wife loves himself. He doesn't mention that so that you learn the secret sauce to getting what you want out of your marriage, because the moment you begin to think like that, you move from love to manipulation. Love is legitimate and sincere concern for the well being of the other. If your love extends only to the other to the degree that they meet your needs, then you don't really love the other. The positive result Paul alludes to in that verse only comes as a byproduct. You'll never catch the thing that you selfishly aim for in this life. God made it so that happiness in this life does not come through self-centered pursuits. Personal happiness, personal contentment comes to us when we live to please another, namely Jesus. And it pleases Jesus when we love our wives the way that he loved the church. And how did he exhibit that love for the church? The same way that we should exhibit loving leadership by serving unselfishly and sacrificially the ones that we love, our wives. Well, after my, my friend shared that story with me about their argument, which ended with him saying, woman, submit. I told the youth group that story, by the way, and they, some of the girls sometimes say this to me as a joke. Woman, submit. I, I think it's funny. Um, I didn't feel at ease, though, when he shared that with me, but I didn't know exactly how to respond that day. But I thought about it over the course of the next week, and when we got together, Again, I shared with him that I believe that his approach to be wrong-headed uh, toward his wife. Because a man who loves his wife never demands their submission. A man who is in Christ should first of all recognize in humility that they deserve no good things in this life. Nothing. If you're in Christ, you know what a sinner you are, and you know that you don't deserve any of the good that you have in this life. How can a man who deserves nothing demand anything? All the good that they have in this life ought to be recognized as a gift and only received with gratitude. This extends to our wives, brothers. We don't deserve them at all, much less their submission. And as handsome and as talented and as strong and as capable and as mature and hardworking as you may think yourself to be, you don't deserve the bride at your side. Proverbs 18.22 says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Do not commit the sin of ingratitude for the gift that is your wife. See her for what she is. She's a treasure beyond estimation given you by a God who loves you. And love her back in Jesus' name. Make her eggs in the morning. Okay? Like I do. Don't get all bitter like I did when she acted disgusted by them. So let's move on though to the kiddos. Verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. For this is well pleasing to the Lord. Kids who are not here, they're downstairs. So parents, I encourage you to let them listen to the recording of this this week. Because this directly addresses them. But kids, like your moms have a tendency to buck against the leadership of your dads, and your dads have a tendency to gravitate towards self-centered passivity and sometimes abusing their leadership role, you will have a natural tendency to disobey your parents. This is the state of the fallen world. And it's the natural sinful tendency of our old selves. Your parents have had the same struggle in life. But I want to state again the audience that Paul had in mind here when he was writing to this church in Colossae. It was a Christian family. Moms and dads and kids that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them and who have declared their desire to obey Him. Kids, in our congregation congregation today, I want you to understand what a privilege you have in growing up in homes where the mom and dad are seeking to live for Jesus. Many of you are growing up in a home like that. Some of you are not. But if your parents love Jesus and want to live for him, you are blessed and privileged. There's a lot of kids in our society that will never know the love and harmony in their homes that you experience and take for granted. Your home is not perfect. Your home life is not perfect. Your parents are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But your home life is so much better than many in our world experience today. You're blessed in ways you can't even imagine. Nowadays, the word privilege has taken on a negative connotation. It didn't used to be this way, and I personally don't think it should be this way now. Privilege, in its simplest form, simply means a special advantage or benefit experienced by someone. If you have a privilege, you have a good thing. Not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed by, In the mid-1980s, when I was growing up, American Express had its great marketing slogan. You may remember it. Membership has its privileges, right? When my dad worked for General Motors, when I was growing up, he could go to a dealership and he could purchase a brand new vehicle, General Motors vehicle, for at one point, a discount of 15%. It was pretty generous back in the day. That was a nice privilege that he got from his employer. My mom worked at P&G. She would get free tickets to Kings Island every year on Dividend Day. And as a retiree, she still gets them. It was very nice. It was a great benefit being an employee of p g When I worked in a broker-dealer, I had the privilege of being able to purchase quality A-share mutual funds without having to pay a sales charge, which could save me quite a bit of money. It was a nice benefit, a fringe benefit of what I did. So everyone, even nowadays, still likes having privileges. Some they work for, some they just have. The problem today is that those who don't have certain privileges begrudge others for having them. And they demand that they be given the same or similar privileges. Another problem today is that an entitlement mentality infects our world. It's so universal that those who have certain privileges take them for granted. And they're no longer even thankful for them. When we live like this, guys, with ingratitude and entitlement and self-centeredness, we risk losing the privileges and blessings that we have received from God. So, kiddos, back to the kiddos. I don't want you to miss what a blessing you have in growing up in a home where your mom and dad love Jesus and love each other. And they love you. You need to be thankful for the gift of your family. You're not entitled to it. It's a blessing from God not something you earned or deserved. It's good that you have it, but don't take it for granted. Thank God every day for your parents and your family. When you bow your head at night to say your prayers, thank God for your mom and all the care that she has taken over you that day. Thank God that your dad smiles and laughs with you and he spends time with you. Many kids don't have this. It's a gift from God. The greatest expression of your love for your parents as children and thankfulness to God is to obey your parents in all things. Jesus told his disciples, we just talked about it in Sunday school this morning, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When we disobey our parents, we don't communicate that we love them. We also don't communicate to Jesus that we love him. The greatest expression of your love and thankfulness to God for your parents is to obey them. Young ones who have put your trust in Jesus, the aspiration of your new selves in Christ should be to obey your parents. This makes Jesus very happy, and your parents too. And when you honor and please your parents, the result most often is your own personal well-being as well. Deuteronomy 5.16 says to children, honor your father and your mother as as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Your lifelong well-being is tied to your relationship to your parents. Show them honor and obedience from a desire to please Jesus. And you may find your life is blessed beyond measure. So let's move on to the, the final family dynamic, the parents to the children. Verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, the word for fathers here can be translated as parents, similarly to uh, the way that it's translated in Hebrews eleven twenty three, 23, where it refers to Moses' parents, plural. So it's obviously talking about his mom and his dad. Many of the commentators that I consulted indicated that would be preferable to, and, and more accurate if the word was rendered parents in the English. But you'll, you'll be hard-pressed to find um, there's a number of English translations that don't translate it as parents. But it's certainly true that, that both parents can have an exasperating or provoking effect on their children. But according to uh, Bauer and Danker's Greek lexicon, which is kind of the premier lexicon, which I have access to because of Pastor John's Logos account, it's very cool, the word for exasperate in the Greek um, can actually have this meaning, which is to cause someone to react in a way that suggests acceptance of a challenge, right? Let me say that again. To cause someone to react in a way that suggests acceptance of a challenge. And if this is the meaning that, that, that Paul is trying to give, convey, then I actually favor the understanding that Paul is talking specifically more to fathers rather than to both parents here. Because men tend to do this type of exasperating more so than women do, I believe at least with their sons. We think that if we can get our boys to assert themselves and exert their strengths, that they will grow and and they'll get stronger themselves. And, And getting the boys somewhat angry can produce this effect, right? Causing them to accept our challenge, so to speak. Some coaches, not very good ones, they train their players by ticking them off and making them mad so that the players feel that they have to prove themselves. So they taunt them or they get in their face or they talk smack to them so that they'll lash out to display their strength. And then oftentimes they'll cower in submission at the futility of raging against a stronger individual. This is very similar to a way that a drill sergeant trains a new soldier or a recruit in the army. It may be effective to a degree, in training an athlete or, or a soldier. But it's not optimal in training a child to become a godly man or woman. This mode of parenting is worldly. And it's the tendency of our old selves to parent this way. Before Jesus, we would raise our kids in this way. Dads, just like your great temptation will be to exercise your husband, uh, husbandly authority in either a abusive or a passive way, it will also be this way with your kids. You risk being being an overbearing authoritarian that's too hard on your kids, or you risk being a distracted, disinterested, and passive parent that doesn't give them the discipline or the encouragement and love that your children need. And there's so many ways that we can risk exasperating our kids. MacArthur gives a quick list of 10 that I thought was very good. Overprotection, favoritism, depreciating their worth, setting unrealistic goals, failing to show affection, not providing for their needs, lack of standards, criticism, neglect, excessive discipline. And that list could go on and on and on. Parents, I want you to hear this though. Just because your kid gets angry at you doesn't necessarily mean that you're guilty of exasperating them. You hear me? Your kids have a sin nature too. Uh, And even your kids who are Christians still are in the process of overcoming their flesh. So, as you parent your kids, let God's Word, let your Holy Spirit-inspired conscience, and let your practical wisdom that you've gained through experience in life be your guide as you're dealing with your kids. Don't let your child's emotional volatility teach you how you need to, to raise your kids. Sometimes, Oftentimes, actually, in sin, your child will be irrationally angry at you, and you have to stand your ground until they come back with a leveler head and calm down. There's been many times when my kids got ticked off at me, thinking that I was being unreasonable, only to later realize that I was right. And they ended up appreciating what I did. I can think of one of my kids who basically told me that I ruined their whole life and their bicycle when I took their training wheels off, right? I didn't ruin their lives. They thought I did. I was expanding their horizon, right, so that they could more fully experience and enjoy their lives. I was training them for a greater purpose and more capability, and they eventually saw that after they learned to ride without training wheels. But that said... There have still been times when I realized I was in the wrong as a parent, and I had to confess that. I had to do that this past week. I was cooking some eggs for one of my kids, and that's a different story, I'm sorry. Um, no, I'm kidding, I'm not going to tell you that story. But there's something about having the privilege that I have and the responsibility to study and prepare to teach the Bible, and it reveals your own failings. And it revealed one of my own failings this week. I don't know if you've ever experienced that as you've sought to study God's Word. But during this week, I realized I needed to apologize to one of my kids and ask them to forgive me for deliberately doing something that I knew made them unnecessarily angry at me. Because I treated their anger toward me as a joke, and it was wrong. It was wrong. Incidentally, this is one of the characteristics of my dad that he had when I was growing up that still endears him to me to this day. He was willing to apologize. When it was appropriate, not all the time, he wasn't one of these guys that just says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry all the time. When it was appropriate, he would come in and he would apologize if he felt he had done something wrong so that he could make it right, so that there remained no rift in the relationship. And that's exactly what anger produces, a rift in the relationship. Parents, the aspiration of our new selves in Christ is not to anger our children. We aspire to relate to them in love. Exhibiting all of the qualities in the home that we exhibit in the church and elsewhere. We put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience with our kids. Like it says in verse 12. We do this in the home for the same reason we do it elsewhere. Because God chose us. God set us apart. God loved us. That's also in verse 12. So we moms and dads, And kids, we bear with one another. We forgive one another because the perfect bond of love brings unity to our home. Verse 14. I believe that I've said enough. So hopefully this sermon has been challenging to you and hopefully it proves to be useful in your life and in your growth. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you, Father, for the gift of your son, and thank you for the transformative work of your word and your spirit in us that um, makes us consistent in our homes. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the case. Father, I pray that you would give us homes that exhibit this ideal that's laid out for us in these four verses that we looked at today. And I pray that you'd be glorified in the way that we live our lives and our families. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stand, if you would, for the benediction. May the peace of Christ reign in your homes as it does in your hearts. And may the fruit of your family be toward the glory of him who saved us. Depart in his peace. Amen.